deception, some forms of it, some forms of deception are easier to detect than others. So I wonder how many of you have received that email from the infamous Nigerian prince? You know what I'm talking about? Just raise your hand. You know what I'm talking about. Okay, I'm a little surprised. More of you haven't received it. It's been around for a few decades. Um, But this is the email where a member of royalty reaches out to you. And he's very rich. The problem is he's been exiled, and so he can't get access to his money. But if you'll give him your bank account information, he'll move it into your account, and he'll leave some of it with you, right? A nice, handsome fee for it. Right? That's, the, that's the scam that's been actually about for a number of decades. It actually goes back to an old 19th century Spanish prisoner scam, so it's not exactly new. And most of us know that, that emails like that, right, they're too good to be true. Not to mention sometimes the English is laughably bad for a member of royalty. But it does prey on our deepest desires for wealth and the kind of security that wealth can provide, which is sadly why it is still around after decades, because people still fall for it, and they give money to it. But, you know, some forms of deception are a bit harder to spot. So some of you will remember the jojoba bean craze in the late 1970s. Right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry. But a lot of doctors and dentists and lawyers, some that I know, were taken in by this craze. Or Theranos, right? This was the company that was founded by Elizabeth Holmes, right? It was supposed to revolutionize the blood testing industry. Only we came to find that though she became quickly the, the fastest sort of self-made billionaire of any woman, right? She was going to be the Mark Zuckerberg of biotech. It came to find that actually all of those lab tests were fabricated. There was no real product. And people lost gobs of money. Right? In that sense, deception, friends, can be quite costly. But I want to raise the question, what about deception when it comes to religion? Right? What about deception when it comes to your own relationship with God? For as much as we don't want to be deceived financially, the cost of being deceived spiritually, right, that cost can actually be infinitely greater. So friend, how might you be spiritually deceived This morning, I wonder if you even have a category for that, a category for for kind of spiritual deception. And friends, it's these kind of questions that bring us back this morning to our study in the New Testament book of James. So this is, as we saw last week as we opened up, it's it's one of the punchiest, it's one of the pithiest, it's one of the most practical, and therefore one of the most popular books in all the Bible. And I'd invite you to turn to James. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. If you want to use one of the red Bibles and the seatbacks before you, you should be able to find that on page 1011. Page 1011. Now, last week we saw that this book was likely written by James, the brother of Jesus, and it was addressed primarily primarily to Jewish Christians who had fled Jerusalem and they were being persecuted across the empire. And, And part of that persecution was actually financial exploitation. And so James begins by reminding them that all of these trials... Well, they're all part of God's way of completing the work that he's begun in us. So far from being tokens of God's displeasure with us, such trials rightly understood are in fact a vote of God's confidence in us. 
But of course, what's the danger, friends, in the midst of great trials? When you're undergoing a trial, what are you tempted to think? Well, maybe you're tempted to think like this trial is a kind of punishment for something you've done. Maybe you're tempted to think that as a result of this trial, right, or maybe as the trial is a consequence, I should say, of God's frustration with you. Maybe you assume God is angry with you. Maybe you assume in the midst of trial that therefore God must no longer love you, or that he's not good, or that he can't be trusted, or that he's not in control. I mean, he would fix this if he could, but he simply can't. Well, friends, in the midst of great trials, we're tempted, even deceived, into thinking all kinds of things about God. Well, friends, what should we be thinking about God in the midst of such trials? Look down with me to James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Now, at first glance, it may look like James has just employed another one of those abrupt transitions, kind of like an Allen Iverson crossover. If you remember dating myself, those of you who watch Allen Iverson, right? He's going one way, boom, crossover. He's going the next way. He's leaving his defenders stumbling, confused, right? Sometimes we come to James, it's like the quick crossover, right? What's the transition? Where are we going? And yet, because, what did we see in verses 1, 1 to 12, right? It's all about trials. And all of a sudden, flip. Verse 13, now it's all about temptations. But friends, the underlying Greek word actually for trial and that underlying Greek word for temptation is just the same word. It's the same word. So this word can mean to test or to try, like in Hebrews eleven seventeen, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, but the same word for to try or to test can also mean tempt, as in Mark 1.13, Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So James is not, in fact, abruptly switching topics as if trials and temptations are two separate and distinct and unrelated things. No, given the context, I think that first tempted in verse 13 Remember, it can, be tempt- it can be translated either as tempted or tried. I think that first tempted in verse 13 is better translated as trial. That's how another translation does it, the CSB. No one undergoing a trial should say, God is tempting me. Right, that's the connection. No one undergoing a trial should say, God is tempting me. And friends, it's right there that we can deceive ourselves. It's right there that we can go astray because trials prompt all manner 
of temptations within our own hearts. So the one suffering under financial hardship can be tempted to what? To distrust God's provision, to distrust God's care. The one suffering the loss of a loved one can be tempted to question God's love. The one suffering a great injustice can be tempted to doubt God's care or to impugn his justice. Friends, do you know what that's like? I know sadly I do. But James, right, doesn't want us to be deceived. In the midst of these great trials, he wants us to know that God never tempts us, but is only and always good to us. That's the basic gist of these verses, that God never tempts us, but is only and always good to us. And so in verses 13 to 15, we learn what God doesn't do, right? He doesn't tempt And then in verses 16 to 18, we learn what God does do. What does he do? He gives good gifts. So to put it another way, what James is saying more pointedly is don't accuse God, but do adore God. And and James is sort of punchy style. That'll just serve as our outline, right? Don't accuse God, verses 13 to 15. Do adore God, verses 16 to 18. So first, let's think about that first uh, section, verses 13 to 15. Don't accuse God. Don't accuse God. Because again, that's the risk that we often face in the midst of our trials, that we will start to what? To accuse God. To blame God. And friend, it's one thing to complain to God, but it's a whole other thing to complain about God. Right? The first one is biblical, bringing our complaints to God. The second one is sinful, right? complaining about God. And when life gets hard, it is sadly all too easy for us to complain about God. For every trial can become a temptation where we accuse God and blame God. And James doesn't want us to be deceived. He wants us to know where the blame For such temptations doesn't lie, verse 13, it doesn't lie with God, and where it does lie, verses 14 to 15, right, with us. So let's look, verse 13, let no one say when he is, you can read that tempted, or as I've suggested, I think it's better read undergoing a trial, let no one say when he's undergoing a trial, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Right? James is saying, when we are tempted, we can't accuse God. We can't blame God. Because that's not who God is, and that's not how God works. Right? Sin, it's not who he is. Sin holds no attraction to him. God is never lured into sin. God can never be enticed towards sin. Sin, he has no impulse for it. But he is rather repulsed by sin, God is. And friends, that right there, that God in no way can ever be tempted or lured and enticed by sin, that ought to serve as a tremendous encouragement to you. Imagine if God, right, with all of his infinite power, could be enticed to wield that power sinfully, to wield that power destructively. 
You know, we worry about Iranian leaders, maybe, for example, getting their hands on a nuclear weapon. Imagine God, right, in the mission control room of the entire universe, everything in his hands could be tempted to use those hands sinfully. Right? That's a horrifying thought. But not only, James is saying, can God not be tempted, but he also is saying, right, he himself tempts no one. So get this, God may test us, but he never tempts us. And that is a critical distinction that we need to make, right? God may test us, we thought about that last week, but he never tempts us. Now earlier in uh, the service, we were going to confess from our own confession of faith that article on divine providence. We inadvertently jumped right over it, but... If you want to look there at your, uh, at your worship guide, you can see it. Let me encourage you to turn there, that article on divine providence. It's on page, page five um, in our corporate confession of faith. And this is what we believe as a church, right? We believe that God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass, Friends, what are those all things that come to pass? Well, those also include our trials, James 1.3. And he perpetually upholds and directs and governs all creatures and all events, right? So that we know from James 1.4, right? So that we would be complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. And yet we read and confess in our statement of faith, So as not, God acts this way, yet so as not in any way to be the author or approver of sin. Right, you hear in that, he is not tempted, nor does he tempt anyone, James 1.13, nor to destroy the free agency and responsibility of intelligent creatures. Now for those of you who were at the Excellent Women's Institute about two weeks ago, Haley Meyer was actually covering this very topic of providence, and she did a marvelous job sort of navigating and talking through those things. And if you missed it, all women are welcome to come. If you missed it, I'd encourage you to pick up the audio on our website. Right? But the danger is that we forget this, and the danger is in the midst of trials, we begin to think, you know what, God made me like this. Or he gave me this weakness. Or he has put me in this trial, this seemingly impossible situation. And of course I would fail. And of course, therefore, the fault must be with him. But to such accusations, James blows the whistle, right? He throws the flag. He says, God may test his servants in order to strengthen their faith. But he never tempts them to sin in order to destroy that faith. So God may test his servants in order to strengthen their faith, thought about that last week, but he never tempts his servants to sin so as to destroy their faith. So friend, if the blame doesn't lie with God, where does the blame lie? Now we might expect James right here to talk to us and to warn us about Satan. He's going to do that later in James chapter 4. And we know that Jesus himself called Satan the tempter in Matthew 4, 3. And we also know that Paul does the same in 1 Thessalonians 3. But interestingly, James doesn't point the finger at Satan right here, does he? I think James knows all of our tendencies to blame shift. 
right? To point the finger elsewhere for our struggles. And so instead, James takes his finger and he points it right into our own chests. And he says, the blame lies with us, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, notice, by his own desire. Now, James grew up around the Sea of Galilee, and he would have been, therefore, very familiar with fishing. And so he grabs this image of a fisherman kind of baiting a hook. And that bait, what does that bait do? That bait entices the fish. And once the fish bites and is hooked, right, it is lured and dragged away. According to James, the problem in all of this, it's our own desires, Now, that word desire can be used positively in the New Testament. It's also often and more regularly used negatively. And given the context here we're seeing in James, I think that's exactly what he means here. He means desiring something that's forbidden, a kind of sinful, a kind of evil desire, which is why some modern translations, CSB, NIV, will say evil. They they put that word in to help bring clarity to what James is getting at, right? These are evil desires. And friends, that very notion may may strike you as odd. You may be taken back by that surprise because in the logic of our present age, if we desire something, it must necessarily be good for us. Right? It must not just be good for us, it must be embraced by us. And not only embraced, that desire deserves to become a right. And that right deserves to be respected by all. Right, that's the logic of our present age. That's how it works right now in the world of gender and sexuality, for example. But James, see, James right here, he's challenging us. James is pushing back on us. He's saying just because we desire something doesn't mean it's right for us and doesn't mean it's good for us. For not all our desires are good. In fact, some indeed are evil. James says. Now I wonder if you've come this morning and wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Do you find yourself agreeing at all with James? Maybe even against your better judgment? Do you find in any way that how James is talking about desires, do you find in any way that might ring true in your own life? Do you ever find that you have to try and restrain your desires? Do you ever find that if you were to have to vocalize those desires, you might be ashamed and embarrassed by them? Do you find yourself even trying to bury those desires or try to pretend those desires aren't there? If so, my friend, what do you do with that? What do you think that says about you? Well, I think what it's saying And what we all, to one degree or another, instinctively understand is there is, in fact, something flawed with us. There is something deeply wrong with us that we have these natural desires that can so quickly lead us astray. And friend, if if you have come and you're not a Christian, right, the wonderful news of Christianity is there is one, right, who had none of these desires, who was tempted in every way just as we are, and yet was without sin. And so this one went to the cross as a substitute for sinners, 
for all of us who instinctively and naturally have our desires turned inward and bent in on ourselves and not outward and not toward God, this Jesus died for such sinners and then was raised again in newness of life so that all those who see their need to be forgiven of their sins, to be cleansed of their sins, right, to be accepted by God, those that repent and believe in Christ, right, they can be forgiven and they can be welcomed by God. Friends, that's just the simple news of Christianity. That's what Christians refer to as the good news. That Jesus Christ had no evil desires, but died for those who do and can't escape them. And friend, if you want to think more about that, talk about that, talk to the person who invited you, find me at the back door. We'd love to do that. But I also want us to see a clear implication of verse 14. Friends, is we can't blame God for our poor, cho- poor choices. We can't blame our parents. We can't blame our peers. We can't blame our difficult position. We can't blame our genes. And we can't blame God. In every sin, we choose to act according to our desires. Nobody forces us to do that, right? We do what we desire to do. So while our circumstances might be the occasion of our sin... Our circumstances are never the cause of our sin. Right, hear that again. Your circumstances may provide the occasion for your sin. I understand that. But recognize your circumstances are never the cause of your sin. No, it's desire. Your sinful, evil desires, says James. Which, what? They give birth, verse 15, to sin. And that brings forth, James says, death. So just notice the sinister progression of sin here. Right? It begins with deception. We don't believe God. We don't trust God. We question him and we doubt his goodness, right? just like our first parents did back in the garden. And then that deception is aided by, by what? By desire. Right? The hook is baited. Our desires are stirred and we're enticed and we're drawn in. And that desire leads to what? It leads to disobedience. Right? We take the bait. We bite down. And that desire leads to our death. Right? That's where it all leads. Being drawn away, being lured away into physical and spiritual death. Deception, desire, disobedience, death. That's the sinister progression James is laying out. And so my Christian friend, the question I want to put to you is, what temptations... Are you flirting with right now? What temptations are you toying with in your own life? Maybe it's a a temptation to lie. Maybe it's a temptation to lie to your parents about something. Maybe it's a temptation to cheat in school. Maybe it's a temptation to cut some corners at work. Maybe it's a temptation to indulge in something. To indulge in pornography or to indulge in an inappropriate sexual relationship or to indulge in drinking to the point of being drunk or drugs or to indulge in gossip, right, which destroys relationships. Just James is saying, stop, step back, see again where all of this leads. Deception, aided by desire, results in disobedience, which lands us finally in death. And so ask yourself, I mean, is that temptation really worth it? Is it really worth it? 
Because sometimes we're tempted to think, if we just give in to our desires, we'll kind of get it out of our system. So, I, you know, I'll, I'll sometimes come home from work, and I'll be a little irritated, something will have happened, and if I just go into the garage, right, and I get a good sweat in, I can relax, I can calm down, I can sort of get it out, and I can feel better afterward. But friends, sin is not like that. If we indulge in it, it's not like it leaves us alone and then goes away. No, acting on sin, feeding sin, nurturing sin, that's like pouring gasoline on a small flame. And what happens? It turns into an inferno, right? It burns down the whole house. The problem is that our desires in the moment might seem pretty harmless. So my, my wife showed me this video earlier this week. I guess it's, it's gone viral um, and maybe you've seen it, it's these two twin boys, and they're about 18 months old, and they're sitting down at a table, and their dad lays out a pile of fruit snacks, pile in front of one, and then a pile in front of another, and he says, you can't eat them, he's like, I gotta go away for a minute, you can't eat them, but I'll be right back, but don't eat them, he says, and then of course the dad walks out, and the two little boys are watching their dad, and they stare as he walks out, and then the eyes slowly drift down to the fruit snacks, and they stare, and you can see the gears turning. You can see the mouths watering. No dad, fruit snacks. And all of a sudden, one of them, with this wonderfully mischievous grin, looks at the other one, and then the other one looks and nods, <laughs> and boom! They go, hand, grab a fistful, go. The other one's two-fisting it. And the next thing you know, they're like swaying like penguins. They're all happy, right? They're dancing. Well, friends, what have we just seen? Deception. Dad doesn't know what he's talking about. Desire, it's all over their faces. Disobedience, right? They dive in, two-fisting. What the video doesn't show is death. Right? It doesn't show where it leads of course, it's cute and funny when it's 18 months old, in part because we all resonate with it, right? We all get it. We know what that's like. But what's cute and funny at 18 is dead, or 18 months, right, is deadly at 18 years. Which is why we need to put our desires to death before they conceive. You know, J.C. Rowell was a, a British pastor from the 19th century, and he wrote a little pamphlet, a little book that I've given away on Sunday nights called Thoughts for Young Men. And in it he writes, habits like trees are strengthened by age. A boy may bend an oak when it's a sapling, but a hundred men cannot root it up when it's a full-grown tree. His point is we need to fight sin when we're young. And when sin is still young in us, before sin really has the time to take root, before it's become so strong that we can't topple it, we can't deal with it anymore. Right? That's the way we need to approach the temptation to sin in our own life. Right? We need to cut it at the root as soon as we come to find it. But you know, I do want to also just give a pastoral word, especially to some of us who have more sensitive consciences. Because some of us may think that if we're undergoing, undergoing some great trial or temptation, or maybe we're just undergoing many temptations for whatever reason in our life, it just seems our life is filled with temptations, 
We might be tempted to think there's something wrong with our relationship with Jesus, that maybe we're failing Jesus in some way. But friends, recognize temptations in and of themselves are not sinful. Temptations aren't sins. Jesus was tempted. And we read Jesus was in fact tempted in every way as we are, Hebrews 4.15. And yet he was without sin. So temptation is not the same thing as sin. And of course, as we grow in the Christian life and as we mature, hopefully the power of our temptations and hopefully the frequency of our temptations and hopefully those things we're tempted toward, well, hopefully all those things will change. But friends, in this life, it's not like temptations ever go away. So just because you're being tempted or maybe you're feeling temptations greatly doesn't mean that God has abandoned you or you're necessarily failing again in some way, right? Christian maturity is not measured by the absence of temptation, but whether or not you succumb to that temptation, whether or not your desires lead you to bite on the hook, right? Now, verse 16 is is really a transition verse, the verse that serves like glue, right, and connects verses 13 to 15 to what follow in 17 and 18. It's linking. Verse 16 is linking those two sections together because, as we've seen, it's easy to be deceived. It's easy to begin to accuse and blame God in the midst of our trials. And James is saying, hey, wait, don't be deceived, verse 16. And then notice he refers to them as what? His beloved brothers, James is, and you could read that brothers and sisters, right? He's not referring just to men there. James is now leaning in, and he's almost whispering to them. And you can feel the kind of urgency in his voice. And James is saying, you can trust God in your trials. And you can turn to him in your own temptations. So don't accuse God. But secondly, positively, do adore God. Right, that's where moving on to that second point, do adore God. For as easy as it is to forget how bad we are, recognize it is equally as easy for us sometimes to forget how good God is. Right, we forget how bad we are, easy, it's also easy to forget how good God is. Which is why he reminds us, James does, that every good and perfect gift, verse 17, is from above. Which is to say it comes from the Father of lights. And that expression there likely speaks to God as creator, right? God is the one who created the cosmos, who created light, right? Who flung the stars into space, who fixed the orbits of all of the planets, the one who brought the seas, right, to the shore and then said no more, right? Stop right there. Like this creator of the cosmos. This is who God is. And there's not a corner of that cosmos that he doesn't know and there's not a corner that he doesn't uphold. And the key thing about this creator, James says, this is how Jeremy led us as he introduced us, introduced us really to the service, right? What's the key thing about this creator? He doesn't change. He doesn't change. Now, the end of verse 17 might read a bit clunky, but another way to translate it is to say that this father of lights does not change like the shifting shadows, right? He does not change like the shifting shadows, So last Saturday, my wife and I were sitting out on our front porch, and it was a cool day, and there was a cool breeze, but the sun was nice and warm. So we're sitting out there and reading. But of course, what's the problem? There are all these clouds, 
And these clouds cast all these shadows, and the clouds kept crossing over, and then we'd be in the shadow, and then we're trying to move and escape the shadows because the shadows are always moving about us. The shadows were always shifting, always changing. And that's, James says, that is not like God. Now, some people, if you're into theology, think of God as exactly like that, ever-changing, ever-growing. It's called process theology. God is always learning. He's always adapting. He's always shifting to the world about him. And James is saying, no, no, no. The heavens are in constant flux. I get it, right? Shadows all about us, and they change, and they move. And yet, even our own hearts, he's saying, are in constant flux. But God doesn't change. He doesn't. In a word, God is, right, to use a theological word, he's immutable, right? He's immutable, which is to say God in his nature and his character and his purposes, he doesn't change. Now, we do, right? We change our plans all the time. So as a family, for the last few weeks, we've been desperately trying to figure out what we're going to do for spring break. Now, I don't know if we're the only family that gets thrown by this. Maybe it's the fact we have kids all doing different things. But you would think that we would need, like, some kind of supercomputer to sort this out. We're having the hardest time. It shouldn't be that complicated, but we've gone from a staycation to camping to a cabin to driving down to Florida for a swim camp, right? And we've had all these various options. And the point is that something as simple as spring break in our own family, right, our plans, constant flux, always changing, Either because our desires change or because we can't anticipate obstacles in our lives or because, there's, because there are others who mess with our plans and they mix them up or maybe we just have the power and the ability to affect the things we want to do. James is saying not so with God, not this God. He has all the power and knowledge, which means his plans and his purposes, friends, they always come to pass. Nothing ever catches God by surprise. He never has to resort to plan B or plan C, which means practically, my Christian friend, you can trust God even in the midst of your greatest trials and your most significant temptations. You can rely upon him, for he will always act in conformity to that which he's promised you. Right? We live as if you know, on the surface of a restless ocean. So James talked about that wind or at that wave of the sea, rather, that was being blown and tossed by the wind. We understand that wave. We know what it's like to get blown and tossed about by life's travails. But God is a rock amidst those fluctuating waters. And so with unshakable confidence, we can rest in him who does not change. And because he's good, James is saying everything he gives is good. And what's the greatest evidence, my Christian friend, of God's goodness to you? What's the greatest goodness of his evidence, uh, greatest evidence of his goodness to you? Yeah, I heard someone say Christ. Yes, love the Jesus answer in church. It's true, though. I mean, that is, that is a tremendous and the greatest gift. And we only come to know Christ through the gift of what God has done in giving us him. But we can, we can tend to think, right, greatest gifts Well, it's not the school that we get into. The greatest gift in our lives is not whether we will succeed in sports. The greatest gift is not whether or not we're going to land that lucrative job or get married or have kids or have grandkids. The greatest evidence 
of God's goodness is seen not just in creation, but in our salvation, Christ. That's what verse 18 is all about, right? Of his own will, he, God, brought us forth. Now that expression brought us forth, it's just the same word he used back up in, uh, up in verse 15, right? Where sin fully grown brings forth death. This word literally means to give birth. So verse 18 reads, right, by his own choice, God gave us birth. And so while God doesn't change, he does change us. That's what he does. And he's talking here not of our first birth. He's talking of our spiritual birth. For while sin, notice in the verses 13 to 15, sin gives birth to death, God's salvation gives birth to life. On what ground, he says, of his own will, right, or by his own choice. That's the ground. It's all grounded in God's inexplicable, inexplicable choice of us. Do we choose God? Absolutely. After he first chooses us. Is that what Jesus says in John 15, 16? But I first chose you. Or the words of 1 John 4, 19. We love God only because he first loved us. You know, James Boyce was one of the founders of uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And, and picking up on this, uh, he, he would write, The scriptures teach that regeneration, this new birth being discussed in verse 18, regeneration is the work of God, changing the heart of man by his sovereign will. You hear James 1.18 there. While conversion is the act of man turning toward God, with the new heart and the new desires given by that sovereign will. Right, and how does this God regenerate us? Give us the new birth, verse 18, by means of the word of truth. So elsewhere, this, this expression will refer to the gospel or the gospel of your salvation, Ephesians 1.13. Right, it's through the hearing and receiving of the gospel that God breathes new life into his children such that now... Even in our trials, right, when life has us down and all looks rather bleak and hopeless in our own lives, yet we remain, James says, a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, in the Old Testament, first fruits were those set apart for God, right? They belonged to God. And that they also served as a promise, a foretaste, right, of what would come to pass one day. And so, too, James is saying our salvation, if we're in Christ, it is a reminder that right now we belong to God. But that this greatest gift we could possibly be given is also a foretaste of greater gifts to come. Now, friends, I don't know if you've ever been to a fancy restaurant. Like, if you've ever been down to the Atlas Room downtown, for example. My wife and I, maybe we go once a year, right, for a special occasion. But before you ever order anything... Right Before you sample that mouth-watering appetizer, before you sort of take that slice into that juicy entree, right? before you get to the delectable dessert, right? before all of those things, they give you something small right? to stimulate your palate. There's a, I think there's a name for it, but that's basically what it's there for, right? Something small to stimulate their palate. They just put it in front of you. And friends, as marvelous as salvation is, as glorious as a gift that the new birth is, that we enjoy in Christ... That is just meant, James says, to stimulate our palates. A kind of first fruits that points us toward all that awaits us in Christ. 
Friends, that's what the Lord's Supper reminds us of, right? What we're about to take here in just a few minutes. It's a reminder of what God has done for us in the past, of his presence with us now in the present, of the promises that await us in the future. And friends, if God does not change, it means his choice, right? That doesn't change either. So God won't ever treat you like that junior high romance. You know, the one where one day he likes us and the next day he's running after someone else. That's not how God works. We're not like the daily special down at the diner, right? Here today and gone tomorrow. No, he chose us. Christ died for us. Heaven now awaits us. And God won't forget us. Right, I love what Spurgeon would say about this. Spurgeon would say, child of God, you cost Christ too much for him to ever forget you. Friends, James is saying that this is what God has done for you. And this is what God has promised you. Which to bring it all back means you can trust him in your trials. And you can turn to him in your temptations. So I ask, where might you be spiritually deceived this morning? In the heat of our own trials, right? When everything in life is crumbling about us. The temptation is to think, what, God has abandoned us? He's no longer promised good to us? That we can't trust him, we can't stake our hopes upon him, and we therefore accuse him. But James is saying, friends, don't be deceived. And so he highlights what God doesn't do. He doesn't tempt us. And what he does do, he absolutely gives good gifts to us. So don't accuse God. Do adore God. For God doesn't tempt his children but is only and always good to them. Which means, again, you can trust him in your trial and you can turn to him in your temptations. The question is, will you? Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise and thanks for the directness, for the pointedness the way these verses do, hit us right square in the chest. Lord, we pray that you would not only convict us, but encourage us with your glorious promises that you are infinitely good to your people. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.